In ancient Roman mythology, Janus is the, um, the month of January is named after the ancient god Janus. He's the god not only of beginnings and endings, but also of those liminal spaces, the gates and transitions and passageways between and betwixt one thing ending and another beginning. As a visual manifestation of this duality, Janus is said to have had two faces, each always looking in the opposite direction of the other. So he is a perfect namesake for this first month of the year, when we feel this natural inclination to look back at what has come before, as well as forward at what is still to come. So at the beginning of this new year of 2023, in the spirit of Jonas's two faces, I would like to invite us to reflect on two competing but ultimately complementary books, uh, both recently published. The first book is more cognitive, more rational, scientific, and data-driven. It's titled, Don't Trust Your Gut. Using Data to Get What You Really Want. It's by Seth Stevens Davidowitz, who has a PhD in economics from Harvard and who is a former data engineer for Google. The second book is more trusting of our emotional intelligence, our gut instincts. It's titled Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions That Define Us. Uh, Russ Roberts is the president of Shalane College in Jerusalem, and interestingly, also has a PhD in economics. I don't know what that's about, but <laughs> let's start with what does the data show, and where can it most powerfully inform our decision-making? Then we'll consider some of those wild problems, those even wicked problems that Catherine talked about, uh, that life periodically presents us with, that are messier, that are more complex than a simple data analysis can handle. For wild problems, we need to listen not only to our mind, but to our heart, to our body, to our spirit as well. And that being said, it is true that distinct from any previous time in history, we live in an age, for better and for worse, of big data. You may have heard the saying about, why is it that Google searches and Gmail and social media and these other internet-based apps, why are they all free, or so many of them? Well, if you're not paying for the product, then what? You are the product, right? They're mining your data from all those things you click on. We're Decades into feeding the algorithms with mind-boggling amount of very personal information about ourselves and our preferences. And since we have helped co-create this world of big data, Stevens Davidowitz's proposal is that we leverage that data to the extent possible to us to improve our own lives on our own terms, rather than just leaving it to those giant tech firms uh, to capitalize on. So he has chapters on the big data of marriage and the big data of parenting and sports and money and success and more. Do any of you remember the book uh, Moneyball that was also made into a uh, film? It's the true story of how the Oakland A's, this kind of uh, ne'er-do-well baseball team, used this innovative, data-driven approach to hire a winning team on a teeny-tiny budget. 
The data revealed counterintuitive results, that people were sort of attracted to like the more attractive athletes, and they, they missed the athletes that were actually really good players. And so they, what they were able to do was recruit massively undervalued players. So you can think of this book as Moneyball for Your Life. Or, as a former Google CEO once said, in God we trust, all others better bring data. <laughs> so what wisdom does the great algorithm God of big data have for us? I'll limit myself to sharing three examples. As we ponder what intentions might we want to set in this new year, let's consider what does big data t show us about dating and parenting and happiness. One of the biggest sources for what big data can tell us about dating comes from all those popular online dating sites. The first modern online dating site was launched almost 30 years ago in 1994, and today approximately 40% of couples meet uh, through online dating sites, and that number is just keeping on going higher every year. So what do decades of big data tell us about what actually makes for a good mate in contrast to, you know, kind of like those baseball players that were overvalued for superficial traits, uh, the more superficial things that might lead one sometimes to swipe right on a dating app? You know, no judgment. It all depends on what you're looking for, right? But if you, it is worth reflecting, though, on what are the four qualities that are most predictive of what will make you happy with someone in the long run if you are looking for a long-term relationship. Note that it helps if you also have or are willing to work on having these four qualities. The first is satisfaction with life. Meaning that in general, you know, you, as well as this prospective partner, has a proclivity toward gratitude, a capacity to be grateful for what is already good in your life uh, in the present, as opposed to being perpetually dissatisfied and hypercritical. The second uh, trait is secure attachment style. Now, we could stop right here and talk about hours for attachment style. It's super, super important, but I will sum it briefly to say, meaning that your partner has the ability to trust people and is trustworthy. That's part of uh, core to secure attachment style. Is comfortable um, expressing affection, is open to intimacy. The third is conscientious, conscientiousness, that your partner is reasonably disciplined and efficient and organized and reliable. And the fourth is a growth mindset committed to lifelong learning and improving their talents and abilities through hard work and persistence as opposed to being plateaued and eventually getting bored. Now, your mileage may vary, but what big data shows is that those are the top four traits that are most predictive of how happy you will be with someone if you're looking for a long-term relationship. That and, like, ripped abs, right? <laughs> so... You know. Next, what does big data reveal about parenting? Have you ever heard the saying that regardless of how your children turn out, you should neither take too much credit nor too much blame? Science actually supports that adage. Decades of research reveal that, the, that contrary to Freud, the long-term impacts of parenting are shockingly small. Parenting has surprisingly little impact on life expectancy, on overall health, on education, on religiosity, and on adult income. 
Parents have moderate effect on religious affiliation, on drug and alcohol use and sexual behavior, especially during the teen years, not so much beyond that. Uh, and as well as parents have a moderate effect on how kids feel about their parents. Only a moderate effect. <laughs> I think that's really true. So perhaps the biggest takeaway of big data for parenting is to give yourself permission to lighten up. You're not going to make that big a difference either way. <laughs> There is, however, one factor that has shown up as making the, giving the greatest chance of making a statistical difference in a child's life. It relates to the real estate truism that the most important thing is actually location, location, location. Big data shows that the three biggest predictors uh, of Child's, a child's success is actually the neighborhood and they're raised in and three things about that neighborhood. The first is the percentage of residents who are college graduates. It's sort of modeling that care about lifelong learning. How many people like that are around them? The second is the percentage of two-parent households. That's about stability. And the third is the percent of people who return their census form. <laughs> so, and that correlates to whether you're in a neighborhood that's in, kind of engaged in citizenship. Um, but it, kind of an intro, that last one's definitely my favorite. Now, this information I do think is helpful to know, but if you're like me, you might be feeling your social justice buttons pushed by, by those things. Uh, I certainly did. These statistics, to me, are a resounding call to build a world in which college education is free for all, just like K-12. to To build a world where childcare is subsidized and affordable so that all types of households can be stable. And where civic engagement is made much more easy and accessible. All neighborhoods, not just an elite few, should help children thrive and give them equitable opportunities for success. And to me, I appreciate that big data is showing us how to do that, right? Third, what does big data tell us about happiness? Now, I don't have time to get into this really interesting study. There's lots of ways happiness has been studied most recently. I don't know if you've heard about the Mappiness app that maps happiness, and so I don't have time to get into the details if you want to know that they're in the book, but it's been used to map 3 million happiness measures from more than 60,000 people. I'll share the findings of just the top 10 activities that are shown to have sort of the highest bang for your buck, the highest impact in increasing our happiness. Here too, your mileage may vary, but for most humans, uh, the activities that resulted in the greatest gain in happiness are intimacy, making love. Number two, the second two are arts. I think this is super interesting. And, you know, there's that whole push on STEM, science, technology, and math. But then it's sort of been like, what about STEAM, adding in arts, right? And so to me, the, the top, if we're leaving out the arts, we are leaving people with maybe abilities to make a bunch of money, but incredibly impoverished lives. And I'll also just give a shout out to the humanities. Uh, that, uh, and, and I think that's some of what we're about here at UU. Right, that we're about that kind of lifelong learning and helping people appreciate the arts and books as well as science and all of that. So really interesting to me that the silver and bronze medalists are theater and dance and concerts and museums and libraries. And those are really the undervalued ones. Those are the people that people really underappreciate, can really increase, you're just like, let's just go spend a few hours at the library or a museum or a dance or theater or concert. I think it's also interesting the next two are about getting outside, right? Get away from the TV and just spend some time doing sports or running or exercise or gardening. 
Uh, six to ten, I find it's really interesting that the next one is singing and performing. So join the choir. Deb would love to talk to you about that. I would say, I mean, many scientific studies, it increases your ha- singing, group singing in particular, uh, really increases your happiness. Uh, the next two, I think we were really aware of with the pandemic, right? How much it matters to be able to see people in person and talk and socialize. And then the final three, I think it's really interesting, again, are about getting outside, right? Bird or nature watching, walking, hiking, hunting, fishing. Uh, close runners up, uh, you know, if we kept going the list, hobbies, arts, and crafts are right there, as well as meditating and religious activities. One way to use this information might be to put a copy of this list where you can see it in the new year. You know, put a, put a copy on your uh, bathroom mirror or maybe on your refrigerator or wherever that you can think if you're kind of feeling kind of down and out or listless, go do one of these things, right? Or, or multiple ones of them. Go to an outside museum, you know, like however you want uh, to combine them and see an experiment. What does really increase your happiness in particular? Uh, There's way more detail in the book covering a whole host of additional areas, but the author said that if he had to distill everything he's learned of a deep dive into big data into one sentence about happiness, it would be this. This is the data-driven answer to life, the universe, and everything. Be with your love. Be with your love on an 80-degree sunny day overlooking a beautiful body of water making love. You can see if you want to set an intention for yourself uh, in this year of 2023. So overall, this first book has been arguing that our gut instincts can actually be unreliable compared to what the data shows, in fact, over the long run. We are frequently overly optimistic as a species. We rely on inaccurate anecdotes. The plural of anecdote is not data, right? We latch onto information that is what we want to believe right, confirmation bias, and many other related logical fallacies. Uh, When the data is clear, we are wise to take it into consideration. But some decisions are too complex, even for big data. Remember that both our authors have PhDs in economics, one from Harvard, the other from the University of Chicago. They both care deeply about data. But our second author, Russ Roberts, invites us to differentiate between what he calls tame problems that are quantifiable through big data and otherwise, and wild problems that are more mysteries that have to be entered into, whose long-term results, they just can't be known in advance. Robert says that wild problems resist measurement. What works for you, it just may not work for me, and what worked for me today may not work for me tomorrow. It's just messier and more complicated than that. Wild problems are a whole different beast compared to the tame problems where the standard techniques of rationality can move us steadily forward. Consider the case of Percy Diaconus. He's a widely respected professor of mathematics and uh, statistics at Stanford University. His primary area of research is chance and risk and probability. He has one of the best technical skill sets in the world to perform data analysis on decision-making. But when he was faced with the choice of moving from Stanford to Harvard, he found himself boring his friends to death by endlessly weighing the options. Stanford, Harvard, Stanford, Harvard. I know, you just feel your heart breaks for him. uh, uh, Finally, one of his friends said exasperatedly, 
dude, you're one of our leading decision theorists. Maybe you should just make a list of the costs and benefits and calculate your expected utility. Without thinking, Diaconus finds himself blurting out, come on, this is serious. What a fascinating gut reaction to a problem that is not tame but wild. He was like, this is more serious than math. I love math. This is beyond math. He knew that deciding whether to move from Stanford to Harvard involved variables beyond the scope of any statistics equation. If you're curious, Diaconus, as you can see in the mountains in the pic, I don't think there's mountains like that in Cambridge, right? Uh, He decided he remains at Stanford today, and I suspect part of what was underneath his strong objections, this is serious, to his um, friend, his colleague, is that he probably knew that on paper, Harvard, Harvard's the H-bomb, right? He knew that on paper, Harvard would win out. But for whatever confluence of reasons, he knew on some deep level of heart, of body, of spirit, that staying at Stanford was the right decision for him. And he looks pretty happy with his decision, right? Huge turning points decisions, such as, should I have a child? Should I get married? It's just beyond the power of big data. There may be guidelines for big data that can give us general parameters like those we talked about earlier, but big data can't tell you specifically should I have children and when should I have children? Should I marry this one particular person, right? It just can't tell you that. Should I take this job? Or how to respond to any of the various other wild problems that life periodically throws our way. You just can't know the answers to these questions in advance, all of the tremendous ramifications. You can only live into the answer over time. Arguably, though, knowing that big data can't give us all the answers is part of what makes life interesting. Poetically, Roberts expresses it this way. He says, beware the urge for certainty that you can't act until you're certain. He'll say it'll uh, it'll just tie you down. And not deciding is also to decide. Beware the urge for certainty, the sure thing, the lure of the bird in the hand. Maybe once or twice, just put all your eggs in one basket. Take a chance. Ask her out, or him, or them. Embrace doubt. Go out on a limb. Leave the safety of the street light, the comfort of the campfire. Find new company. Make friends. Make amends. Stretch, reach, don't cower. Flourish, nourish your inner fire. Aim high, he says, and then aim higher. Or more playfully, related to the mysteries of wild problems in this life with which we can only live into the answer over time. Do any of you remember the very final Calvin and Hobbes? The very final one. Uh, It came out on December 31st on the edge of a new year, a date that ancient god, Janus, would very much approve of. There were five panels, each of which invoke the wondrous beginner's mind of a child that we do still have within us. We all have that inner child still. Wow, it really snowed last night. Isn't it wonderful? Everything familiar has disappeared. The world looks brand new right? A new year. A new year. A fresh, clean start. It's like having a big white sheet of paper to draw on. A day full of possibilities. 
It's a magical world. Hobbs, old buddy. Let's go exploring. There's so much broken about our world, but let's not miss how much also remains right and true and beautiful and magical. I look forward to exploring together with you in this new year of 2023. I want to give one final piece of making a new decision. Does anybody have something that they've been like that professor who was like, like boring your friends endlessly by trying to decide? Is anybody in that position right now trying to decide about something? All right, I see a few hands. And others of you can experiment if there's something easier, if you're just like, where should I go to lunch or whatever. You can. I want you to bring those two decisions to mind. Bring them to your mind right now. And what if I told you that you had to decide right now, heads one thing, tails the other, and, and you're going to do that thing. You're just going to make the decision after I, when I flip this coin. So see what you, just and notice inside yourself how you feel while this coin's in the air. And I'm not going to tell you the answer. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because here's the trick. Both of those authors, you can do it yourself. You don't need me to flip a coin for you. Um, you can come use this coin later if you really want to. Uh, both authors mentioned this trick. It, uh, Stephen Levitt, who's, um, uh, who's the Freakonomics, one of the Freakonomics co-authors, came up with this study. It's really interesting. He said it do, the results of the coin flip don't matter. What matters is what you noticed inside yourself of which way you hoped the coin would flip. So you already know the answer. He said that, that's how you find out what your heart, what your body, what your spirit is telling you beyond the data is what decision did you just know? God, I hope it, you know, whatever. Or, or I hope it's not the other, right? It can go either way. All right. So whatever decisions you make later today, going into this next year, may you live them out with love. Continue your journey with love. Care for one another. Care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, of all there is magically to explore in this very interesting world in which we find ourselves. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.